For centuries in Britain, there was a tradition, now largely forgotten, of whiling away the long Christmas night by huddling around the hearth and telling ghost stories. So trying to keep up that tradition, here it goes. In the quaint village of Evergloom, where snowfall painted the landscape in a serene white, a forgotten tradition stirred beneath the festive veneer. He came but once every century to take the souls of the damned. For years, locals spoke of the gatherer, a malevolent spirit that awakened on Christmas Eve. But Evergloom had changed since the last time he had visited, and the tradition had been lost to time. As the clock struck midnight, the shadowy figure emerged from the foreboding woods, cloaked in a black and tattered robe. He shuffled his way towards the village, his sack in hand. The villagers, oblivious to the impending horror, revelled in their celebrations, unaware that the gatherer sought to make them pay for their joy. The creature's footsteps echoed like a funeral drum as it crept through the village, eyes gleaming with a sinister glow. Its elongated fingers traced the outlines of festively adorned homes, leaving frostbitten imprints on windowsills. The air turned frigid, and the once merry carolers now sang haunting melodies. Their voices distorted into mournful wails as he crept from house to house, tearing the souls out of people and stuffing them into his sack. Inside the homes, children nestled in their beds dreaming of presents, were touched with an icy finger. The gatherer, a spectre of the holiday nightmare, slithered through the keyholes and crept into their dreams, turning visions of joy into twisted fantasies of horror. A chilling breeze swept through Evergloom, as the creature reveled in his malevolent dance. Each step left a trail of frozen despair, and the once colourful decorations dimmed into ghastly monochrome. The village square transformed into a macabre tableau, with the frozen bodies of men contorted into grotesque forms, their bodies casting ominous shadows in the twinkling light. In the midst of the chaos, a desperate cry pierced through the night. The village elder, haunted by the tales of the gatherer from long ago, clutched a relic from an ancient tome, a talisman believed to banish the malevolent spirit. With trembling hands, he recited incantations to thwart the creature's spectral rampage. Yet, the gatherer, unfazed by the feeble attempts to banish him, materialised before the elder. Its voice, a cacophony of echoing whispers, taunting him with long-forgotten sins. The elder, paralysed with guilt, realised that the phantom fed on the darkness within the hearts of those it encountered. As the village descended into the abyss of despair, 
The gatherer reveled in its unholy feast. It drifted away into the ethereal night, leaving Evergloom in perpetual darkness. The once thriving village now stood frozen in time, a haunting reminder of the terrifying cost of festive merriment. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast, where we explore the darkest parts of human history. Hope everybody is well. I'm Rob, your host as always. Welcome to the new bonus episode, A Very Mysterious Christmas. I hope everybody enjoyed the escapades of the Gatherer. That was my attempt at the long-forgotten tradition of my country. It was no Dickens, let's put it that way. Anyway... Welcome. I can't believe we're at another Christmas special. I can't believe this will be the end of season two of the show. But don't fret, there's plenty more to come in the new year and in season three. So, what delectable Christmas delights do I have for you in store this year? Well, today, we're going to look into some of history's greatest Christmas mysteries. There are going to be tragedies, murders, and disappearances galore. You know, something really upbeat and festive for this time of year. Just before we start, I want to thank our very first sponsor, Smart Labels, for sponsoring this episode, but more about them later. So without further ado, for the last time this season, please turn off those lights, sit back, and relax next to the fire for more dark history. The Calmet and Heckler Mining Company, or C&H Mining Company, was the single largest copper mining company in the copper country in the northwest Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula. In 1913, the longest strikes of miners were occurring and the C&H Mining Company were suffering due to all of their miners being on strike. The Western Federation of Miners, or the WFM, first established in the area in 1808. Before, the WFM did not have a large enough membership to strike effectively, until 1913, when they began to demand fair working conditions for the miners. At the time, there were perhaps 15,000 men working in the mines, of which the WFM claimed 9,000 as members. The membership voted in favour of demanding union recognition from the management and asking for a conference with the employers to adjust wages, hours and working conditions in the copper districts of Michigan. The membership also voted to declare a strike if management refused to grant conference or concessions. After the vote was held, the WFM sent a letter to the mines demanding the conference. The mine managers refused the request, and the strike was called on July the 23rd, 1913. By Christmas of 1913, the miners and the mines were still at a standoff, and the strike had been going on for five months. On Christmas Eve, many of the striking miners and their families 
had gathered for a holiday party sponsored by the WFM's Lady Auxiliary. The party was held on the second floor of the Calma Italian Hall. As partygoers arrived, they were greeted by a steep stairway that was the only entrance to the second floor. The hall also had poorly marked fire escapes on one side of the building and ladders down the back of the building, which could only be reached by climbing through windows. The tragedy began when the room had filled with over 400 people. They were dancing, singing and generally enjoying the festive merriment, forgetting about the ongoing strike. Until over the joyful buzz came the cry of fire. Nobody knows who exclaimed the word that Christmas Eve night, but it was a false alarm. As a horde of attendees began to panic, they rushed for the steep stairs. In the ensuing stampede, 73 people, including 59 children, were killed. The dead, comprised of 50 Finnish Americans, 13 Croatians, 7 Slovenes, and 3 Italians. To date, there has been much debate on who cried fire and why. This is where the story begins to get a little grey. A common story regarding the tragedy states that the doors at the bottom of the Italian hall stirs opened inwards. According to stories, when the fleeing partygoers reached the bottom of the stairs, they pressed up against the doors, preventing them from opening and causing many people to be crushed. However, all the photos of the doors suggest the double sets of doors both opened outwardly. Some reported that there was a second set of doors internally, which did open inwardly, that caused a crush. But, there was no mention of these doors, or any other doors being a contributing factor at the December 1913 coroner's inquest, the 1914 subcommittee hearing, or of any of the newspaper stories at the time. There were several investigations into the disaster, In the coroner's inquest, witnesses who did not speak English were forced to answer in English. Most witnesses were not asked follow-up questions. It appears that many persons called to testify had not seen what had happened, and after three days, the coroner issued a ruling that did not give a cause of death. In early 1914, a subcommittee of the US House of Representatives came to the Copper Country to investigate the strike and took sworn testimonies from witnesses for a full day on March the 17th, 1914. Twenty witnesses testified under oath and were offered interpreters. Eight witnesses swore that the man who first raised the cry of fire was wearing a button on his coat for the Citizens' Alliance, an organisation that had opposed the trade unions and the strike. After the initial wave of grief had passed following the incident, whilst there was bitterness against the C&H Mining Company, it was considerably greater against the Citizens' Alliance. It was strongly believed that the man who yelled fire was wearing an Alliance badge, and the WFM president, Charles Moyer, who publicised the accusation, refused to retract it. A relief committee 
made up of Alliance members, collected $25,000 to aid the families affected by the disaster. The bereaved families would not accept the committee's money, saying that the WFM had promised them aid. The Italian Hall was demolished in October of 1984, and only the archway remains, although a state historical marker was erected in 1987. Rather a sad story to start, but as we move on, the next will surely have you scratching your heads. This tale is rather famous, but no less interesting. George and Jenny Sodder, like many of their Fayetteville neighbours, had both emigrated from Italy as children. The Sodders owned a trucking company and hauled coal from the region's mines. On Christmas Eve in 1945, the Sodder family were at home with nine of their ten children. Joe, their second eldest, was away with the army serving in World War II. George and the two older boys were already in bed. Jenny took the youngest, two-year-old Sylvia, to bed with her around 10pm. At 19, Marion was the oldest Sodder daughter. She and five of the younger children, Maurice, Martha, Lewis, Jenny and Betty, stayed up a bit later. At 12.30am, a phone call roused Jenny who went downstairs to answer it. She told the caller, a woman with a very weird laugh, that she had the wrong number. Then she hung up and went back up to bed, noticing on the way that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch. An hour later, Jenny Sodder woke again, this time to the smell of smoke. She rushed into George's office, which was full of flames. She and George carried Sylvia out of the house, and the three oldest children, John, Marion and George Jr., also escaped. The stairs to the attic, where the younger children slept, and where the family assumed they were trapped, were already engulfed in flames. The Sodder's phone didn't work, so Marion ran to the neighbour's house, where she tried to call the local fire department. Meanwhile, George tried frantically to reach the attic from outside the house. He rushed for a ladder that was usually stored against the side of the house, but it was missing. He tried to pull out one of his coal hauling trucks to the house so he could climb on top of it and reach the second story. Neither would start, though though they'd been running and driven the day before. In the end, all the surviving sodders could do was watch, helplessly, as their house burned and collapsed. When the fire department finally arrived, hours later, there was nothing left but embers and ash. Everybody assumed that the five children were dead. Soon, though, questions arose. The first was why the search never turned up any signs of human remains. The next question was aimed at the rescue services. The fire chief's explanation for why it took hours for help to arrive seemed suspicious. There was also rumours swirling about threats George Sodder had received in the weeks and months leading up to the fire. 
It was all enough to fan the sparks of doubt, and the sodders began to insist that their five missing children were still alive. Kidnapped before the fire had even started. This notion was strengthened in their minds in 1947, as an article published in Luck magazine caught their attention. It contained a photo featuring several children, and both George and Jenny felt that one of the kids bore striking resemblance to their deceased daughter, Betty. They had always been troubled by the fact that no substantial human remains were recovered during the search. Once they saw the photo, the Sodders became convinced that their children did not die in the fire. They hired the first of several private investigators to help them investigate their chilling suspicions. Though it couldn't be proven that the girl in the photo was Betty Sodder, George and Jenny remained certain that their children had been abducted and that the fire was set to cover up that fact. It was around this time that they learned Fire Chief Morris had allegedly found a human heart among the debris and buried it in a box on the property. When asked why he hadn't notified them of this before, he stated simply that he thought he'd already told them. Morris went with the couple and pointed out the location that he'd buried the box. They dug it up, and for an unknown reason, George took it directly to a local funeral director. After examining the organ, the director said that it was a beef liver and not a human heart. Allegedly, Morris later admitted that the organ was, in fact, a beef liver. He claimed that he had lied about finding a human heart in the rubble to convince George and Jenny Sodder that their children died in the fire, and in turn giving them a sense of closure. Due to its rancid smell, the organ box was then placed outside on the porch steps, where soon it mysteriously vanished. Some believe that the waste disposal might have picked up the box, but it was never confirmed. In 1952, they erected a massive billboard along State Route 16 in Anstead, West Virginia, near their house. It featured photos of the children and read, in bold letters, what was their fate. It also offered a reward of $5,000. The Sodder family spent the rest of their lives running down leads about their missing children all over the country. They tried to involve the FBI, though J. Edgar Hoover himself responded to George Sodder's letter. The Bureau declined to take the case. George Sodder died in 1969, after pursuing leads for the rest of his life. The billboard on Route 16 stood until 1989, when Jenny Sodder died, and her remaining children took the old faded and weathered sign down. Eventually, the story became more local lore than a cold case waiting to be reopened. To this day, nobody actually knows what happened to the Sodder children. I will continue with our stories after this quick advert break from our sponsors, Smart Label. In my storage bin of shadows, cluttered and grime, lurk Christmas horrors and chances of slime, boxes stacked, with spectral delight, ghosts of ornaments causing a fright, tangled lights blinked and eerie glow as whispers of tinsel began to grow. 
Santa's laughter turned to haunting cries. Elves' tiny footsteps, a ghostly surprise. Midnight struck, a chilling chime. As spectres danced in the storage of mine. Amidst the clutter, as shadows did play. I reached for my phone to scan the monsters away. Smart labels the answer, a quick and easy fix. Ordered from Amazon, and here quick sticks. Their QR code stickers, applied to my bin, allowed me to catalogue the mess within. A quick scan from the app, was all I needed. The Christmas monsters, then receded. My shadowy storage bin, now in order. Scurrying away, the Christmas harder. So if you hear the yuletide whispers within, remember smart labels for the cluttered storage bin. Thank you again to Smart Labels for sponsoring this episode. Pick up their QR code stickers today on Amazon. And we're back to the stories. So, 38-year-old Lockhart, Texas resident Latricia Wyatt, was spending Christmas with her boyfriend, Lee Wackerhagen, also known as Dub, and his nine-year-old son, Chansey. Chansey was supposed to return to his mother on Christmas Day, but called her to request a few more days with his father. On December the 27th, 1993, Latricia Wyatt, a nurse and mother of two, was found dead by her father, Jack. She'd been shot six times in the head. There was no signs of a struggle, and nothing in her house was disturbed. Police soon found that her living boyfriend, Dub Wackerhagen, had vanished, along with his nine-year-old son, Chansey. He was immediately considered a suspect. Authorities found that Dub was jealous and abusive in their relationship. He often yelled at Latricia and wanted to know where she was all the time. However, his sister claimed that the fights were not that serious, but his ex-wife also said that he had a temper and was abusive at times. Four days before Latricia's murder, a friend witnessed an argument between them about Chansey leaving a tap running, or faucet if you're in America, which overflowed onto the floor. After she yelled at Chansey, Dub told her that they were leaving, and they did so. Three days later, they were back together again at a restaurant, and all seemed fine. He was the prime suspect in the murder, and a warrant was issued for Dub Wackerhagen's arrest. Three days after Latricia's murder, Dub's pickup was found abandoned 30 miles away in Austin, Texas. Investigators noted that this was a high crime area. In the cab, they found a hunting rifle, checkbook and wallet. In the back was a toolbox, a spur tire and several Christmas presents. All were covered in blood. On testing the blood, it was revealed that none of it belonged to Latricia White, and the blood test against Dub and Chansey were found to be inconclusive. Nevertheless, Dub was charged with Latricia's murder. However, his family believed that he was innocent, and that an unknown person killed all three. Authorities believed that his her-trigger temper led him to murder Latricia and take Chansey. They believed that Chansey may have been the trigger for the fatal argument between them, Four months after Latricia's murder, Chansey's maternal grandfather, 
received a call, apparently from him, that said, Help me, help me. He is certain that it was from him, but Dub's family believe that it was a hoax. Neither Dub nor Chansey have ever been found. Interestingly, over two decades later in 2016, authorities reinvestigating this case stated that they had found evidence that Dub and Chansey were also victims of foul play. The new person of interest in the case is Latricia's ex-husband. They had recently divorced and were involved in the custody battle prior to her murder. He also reportedly went to her house on the last day she was known to be alive. He claimed that no one answered the door. Unfortunately, despite the new evidence, no arrests have been made. The murder of Latricia White and the whereabouts of Dub and Chansey Wackerhagen remain a mystery. And for our final story of this episode, and the season, this really is a strange one. On Christmas night in 1885, John Larson was visiting his employer, Patrick and Matilda Rooney, at their farmhouse just outside of Seneca, Illinois. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories. A paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. After sharing some drinks, Larson went upstairs to bed. However, during the night, he had a coughing fit and trouble breathing. He eventually fell back to sleep. Larson woke up to find Sutton on his pillow. Upon going downstairs, he found Patrick dead in the bedroom with no signs of Matilda. He later discovered a large blackened hole in the kitchen floor with what appeared to be charred remains of a human foot and a pile of ashes. This was all that was left of Matilda Rooney. The cause of death reported showed that Matilda had died of spontaneous human combustion, with her entire body catching fire and burning to ashes. The estimated temperature of the fire was 1,400 degrees Celsius, or 2,500 Fahrenheit. There was no signs of any other fire damage besides the spot where her body had been found. The report also showed that Patrick had died from smoke inhalation. This explained Larson's coughing fit during the night. He had been spurred because he slept behind a closed door on the second floor. Although there was some speculation that Larson may have killed Matilda, it seemed impossible for him to have started such a large fire without damaging the rest of the house. It's possible that Matilda Rooney spontaneously combusted due to excessive alcohol consumption. A popular local legend is that she suffered divine retribution for drinking so much on Christmas Eve. It wasn't until the following day 
that a doctor arrived from Port Huron, Michigan, to carry out an inquest, even though the police had arrived quickly. When he entered the house, he immediately noticed an unpleasant smell. Upon further investigation, he found that Patrick Rooney had asphyxiated due to smoke from a fire that originated in the kitchen. There were a large table in the kitchen with a candle on it that had burnt down on one side. Next to the table was a large hole burned through the wooden floor in a 2.5 feet by 3 feet circle. Through the hole, the underside of the house could be observed, along with a pile of ash and bones. The doctor found a human skull, a clavicle bone, some vertebrae, six inches of a right femur, and a badly burnt ilium. The most shocking discovery was of the two badly burned but still recognisable feet in Matilda Rooney's shoes. When she died, Matilda weighed approximately 160 pounds. However, after she'd been reduced to ash by the fire, she was reduced to just 12 pounds. The burning of her corpse caused a pungent smell and greasy soot residue was clinging to the walls of the house. John Larson, the couple's farmhand, and John Rooney, the couple's son, became suspects. Larson had been with the couple on Christmas Eve, while Rooney stood to gain financially from his parents' death. However, upon further investigation, it was determined that neither man was involved in the crime. John Larson was later cleared of any foul play due to the presence of an outline in his bed that he had slept in that showed his shape which supported his claims that he had slept through the event that night. However, some people speculated that Larson may have sleepwalked or been sleepwalking during the event. Although there was no evidence to suggest that an accelerant had been used to cause the fire, John Rooney was cleared of any wrongdoing. Farmhand John Larson died of lung damage a little over two weeks later. His autopsy showed that he had breathed in the same soot and grease residue that had killed Patrick Rooney. According to the official investigation by the police and the doctor, Matilda Rooney most likely died as a result of spontaneous combustion of the human body. It's believed that her husband, Patrick, was overcome with fumes and died of asphyxiation. Or he may have already passed out, drunk, and then died due to the fumes. Both the doctors and the police pointed to a large amount of alcohol the couple had consumed the previous day as a possible factor in the fire. It was believed at the time that a build-up of grease in the body, combined with raised blood alcohol levels, could lead to self-ignition. However, this theory has mostly been disproven by modern lab studies, which show that an external source of combustion is always required. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this long and dark episode. I promise I won't waffle on too much, but before I get on to the usual, I would really like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I want to thank each and every one of you who have listened to the show over the past two seasons. I also want to thank and welcome the ones who have discovered this show in the last year. I'm going to be having a little break, but we'll probably be back about the 3rd of January, 
with the start of season three. So, for the final time this year, if you could please drop me a review on the show, it really does help the podcast out. The more reviews, the more the algorithm pushes the show out there. If you think friends and family may be interested in the podcast, then share it with them. Links to all socials are below. I know adverts can sometimes be a pain, but if you would like ad-free episodes, the link to the show's Patreon is also below. Not only do you get ad-free content, here is where you can find my other podcast, This Week in History. This is a dive into the week's grisly, gruesome, or just random events throughout history. The Patreon is for people who want to support the channel, but you don't have to. As always, if you've been listening for a while, why not subscribe? Please do it, in that way you never miss an episode. So with all that out of the way, thank you again for listening, a very Merry Christmas to you all, and join us next time for our next episode as we delve into another event and more dark history.